I'm Sean Graham, and what's old is news this week are residential schools. Last week, Canada commemorated the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, which is one of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But one important note about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the initial apology by Prime Minister Stephen Harper for the residential schooling system is that Newfoundland and Labrador was not included in that process. Of course, the province joined Canada in 1949, and the residential schooling system there operated in a different manner than in other parts of the country. So when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was put together, Newfoundland and Labrador was not included. Instead, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau established the Newfoundland and Labrador Residential Schools Healing and Commemoration Project and issued a separate apology for the residential schooling system there. And that project has brought us a new book entitled A Long Journey, Residential Schools in Labrador and Newfoundland by Andrea Proctor, who is part of the project. And the book explores the residential schooling system in Labrador and Newfoundland from the perspective of the students and members of the communities. The previous literature on the schooling system in Newfoundland and Labrador really focused on it from the administrative perspective, from the individuals who are running the schools. So this book is an opportunity for survivors and their families to share their stories really for the first time widely, which was a major focus of the Residential Schools Healing and Commemoration Project. So I had the opportunity to speak with Andrea about the book and about the project as a whole. Really enjoyed the discussion. Think you will as well. So let's get right into my chat with Andrea Proctor. All right. And Andrea Proctor joins me now. Andrea, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for doing this to talk about a long journey, residential schools in Labrador and Newfoundland. And uh, let's get right into this and talk about the residential schooling system in Labrador and Newfoundland. And one of the things that I think, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians feel about the rest of the country is that we forget that Newfoundland and Labrador are not part of the country until 19. 49. So that's well into the residential schooling system. So let's go back to the origin of it. And how does the political difference that that Labrador and Newfoundland are its own dominion before 1949, how does that shape the origin of the residential schooling system in Labrador and then in Newfoundland? Yeah, well, it's fundamental to it because the, the schools here were never part of the Indian residential school system. They were never under the Indian Act. The, the, the federal government had, had nothing to do with them in the first half of the century, um, and then very little really to do with them after. So this, the schools here were started either by the Moravian Mission or the International Grenfell Association. So the Moravian Mission were in northern Labrador, and the International Grenfell Association was uh, a medical charity based really in the States and in Britain, and they dabbled in in education and, and social development things as well. So the schools here had their own, I mean, they were different administratively, I guess, 
is the short answer from from the the residential schools in Canada. They were they were run very differently. Each each school is very unique in itself because they weren't part of this this Canadian network of of schools. So even after Newfoundland and Labrador joined Canada in 1949, uh, they they um, the, the well the federal government did help to fund some aspects of them in in the the 70s uh, especially but they they really had their own unique history and what is the rough timeline because we we look at late 19th century for some of the the first ones in canada are we looking at a similar timeline there in labrador and newfoundland yeah we're looking 20th century so the first one opened in 1906 and then the last one closed in 1980 and are they borrowing from Canada, we, we know there were also schools in the United States as well. Like, are they borrowing internationally or are they really developing their own domestic system? They were borrowing, or they used anyway, the same sort of ideas, the same assumptions that, you know, they needed to separate Indigenous children from the influence of their families in order to transform them into something else. So that sort of underlying motivation was was shared you know, by all of the all of the schools in, in the states in Canada. I'm not sure how much there there definitely wasn't a lot of communication between the the people running the schools here and the residential schools in the rest of Canada. So I don't think they were sharing uh, that way, but they they did have shared assumptions for sure. Did they have the same overarching purpose, right? Johnny McDonald famously wanted to, quote, take the Indian out of out of the child. Are we looking at the same Western civilizing mentality, this very colonial approach to the schools and trying essentially to have Indigenous children in the minds of those running the schools become non-Indigenous and, and a role of assimilation and removing them from their respective cultures? Yeah, underlying, definitely. And as I said, each of the schools were different. So I'll give you an example. The Moravian Mission ran two of the boarding schools, and we call them boarding schools in this province. It's just what what people call them. It's the same thing. So they ran two schools, one in Nain and one in Makovic, so northern Labrador. And in the Nain school, they actually, so the, the missionaries had actually run day school since the 1770s. And it was all Inuktitut. It was a very religious education. So the Inuit families would come into these mission stations between Christmas and Easter. That's the period of time that they would spend there. The rest of the year, they were on the land. But for those few weeks, their children went to day school. But then that changed in the 1920s. The, the Hudson's Bay Company took over the trading in Labrador. And they were, the Hudson's Bay Company was very interested in, in fox furs. And so in order to trap for fox, the families needed to be on the land for a lot of the year and especially the, the winter. So they were no longer coming into the mission stations for the, those few weeks. So their children were no longer attending day school. So it was that impetus that made the, the missionaries decide they wanted to open a boarding school. So they, they, had the boarding school so the children could stay in the community even when their parents were off on the land. So that that boarding school, they did continue the education in Inuktitut. It was all in Inuktitut at that school until the 1940s, until the 
Newfoundland government started to get involved in in education and started we started to see the changes towards an English curriculum and 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 learning English. But each of the schools, and that's its own case. It was very different from the other boarding schools. Uh, but yes, some of some of the other ones, and definitely later on, were were really meant to um, provide. I mean, some of the the administrators were quite blatant in saying we need to provide a white environment for these students to learn a fluency in English and to, to really assimilate. So each of the schools, there's no simple answer. Sure. <laughs> I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying. You know, each of the schools yeah. is quite different, but yes, definitely that assimilation approach was very common. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, at least in that one case, that a lot of the teaching was done in Inuktitut. And one of the things that certainly I've read about is the punishments in residential schools for children using Indigenous languages. So that that seems to be something that was at least a little different initially with that school. And does that speak to the relationship that the Moravian mission might have had with the people there? Does there was there something there that's different from what the, the the other stories that we might see? Like, is there some sort of a community basis for the Moravian mission and the people who are part of that? The missionaries really did promote Inuksha. They, they learned it themselves. Most of the missionaries in the early years were German speaking. Um, so it wasn't even English. That would have been the, the secondary language. I think they had this idea that they, you know, really wanted to keep Inuit, Inuit, you know, quote unquote, they, they had their own ideas of, of what it meant to be missionaries in that community. Children at the boarding school, actually, before the 1940s talk about getting punished if they, they spoke English. But again, I mean, I think there was a bit of a, well, there was quite a bit of, of control though, too. The missionaries were really trying to make sure that Inuit didn't learn English because they didn't want them to to interact with the Newfoundland fishermen or the other the American fishermen who would come up to that area and they there was an element of control there they they right. didn't they wanted to be the missionaries wanted to be the authority in the region they wanted to be the liaison with the rest of the dominant society and and one way of ensuring that was preventing Inuit from learning English on one hand, it did really help to preserve the language in in Labrador, but on the other hand, it was it was another form of colonial control, really. Yeah, and and as the book talks about, most of the history of residential schools, boarding schools in Labrador, Newfoundland, has been told through the voices or perspectives of those missionaries. So let's shift our attention to the communities themselves, and I would say that for somebody who grew up in Southern Ontario, has lived in the West, now lives in Ottawa, Labrador has to be the least known place in the entire country for outsiders, I would say. Like we, we never learn about Labrador other than it's there, right? So uh, so what communities were there and, and were subjected to boarding schools? Obviously, you mentioned Inuit communities. Is that the predominant uh, or those, are those the predominant communities who those are their traditional lands? And, and is that who the residential schooling system in Labrador was really set up for? 
Yeah, so northern Labrador is the homeland of, of Inuit. Uh, so it's, it's now Nunatsiavut, Inuit. Uh, and so that's where the Moravian missionaries were. And, and so there were two boarding schools there at Nain and then at Makovic. Um, and then in, in southern Labrador, it's the, the Nunatuavut Community Council Inuit who are uh, living mostly on the, on the coast there. Uh, and so there were boarding schools at, so, and these are all International Grenfell Association boarding schools. Uh, there was one at Northwest River, which is in the central part of Labrador. There was a, an early boarding school in Muddy Bay, which is near Cartwright, kind of in the, the central south, well, central east Labrador, I guess. And then that school burned down and another school was rebuilt at Cartwright. Uh, there was a school in the briefly in the 1930s at Mary's Harbor, uh, and then there was an orphanage. The IGA ran an orphanage in St. Anthony, which is in northern Newfoundland, the northern peninsula. Are the communities on the island different than Labrador? I, I get the only thing really I learned about in school relative to Indigenous peoples in Newfoundland were the Beata, and that's really all we got taught and, and otherwise that was it. So uh, yeah. is there a difference in communities? Obviously there's a difference. It's an island versus the mainland. So certainly there are going to be cultural differences geographically, but who are the people who are there in, in Northern Newfoundland? Yeah. So Northern Newfoundland, they were, they were mostly, uh, well, it was a mix actually. They're, they were um, um, white fishermen families mostly. So British ancestry for the most part. There are a lot of Mi'kmaq families there as well, but that's not something actually that that we really looked into in this project. I think it would be something that that would be quite quite fascinating to to look into and to see how the orphanage in San Anthony affected uh, Mi'kmaq families. So a lot of the 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 orphanage would take in children from the Northern Peninsula. So, so British ancestry children as well, but also they would the IGA would also send down uh, children from Labrador, so Inuit children, and in Labrador too, of course, uh, Inu live in in the central part of Labrador, and so these boarding schools were not really directly intended for them. the The Inu had their own. Well, first of all, the Inu were had Catholic priests living with them. So the Catholic priests would, would run their own schools and, and really tried to keep the religions separate too. So these boarding schools were not really intended for, for Inu. They were not established for them, but, but some children, some Inu children did attend them, especially if they, they went to Northwest River or if they went to St. Anthony for medical reasons, or if they were apprehended by the, the state, if they were taken by by social services, they they would live in these institutions as well. What are the populations of both the communities and the schools? Like, what are the rough numbers that we're looking at for the communities themselves and the number of children who were taken to the boarding schools? Yeah, so Nain is, I think, 1,200 now, but it would have been a lot smaller this period of time. Yeah, a couple of hundred, really and fewer in some of the communities because at this period of time most of the families were not actually living in communities they were living in their own you know homesteads or scattered around around the bay so communities themselves 
often didn't sure. really exist to the same extent. Right. And yeah, in terms of numbers of children in the school, it's really, really difficult actually to figure that out because the records just don't exist. They, they're really, really poor. I tried to estimate how many children, and I'm thinking maybe 2,000, probably okay. not that many, but in, in total. So 2,000 children between 1906 and 1980. And so Indigenous children, I'm not, I didn't, uh, I'm not counting the Newfoundland children who went to the St. Anthony Orphanage. So you mentioned 1980 is the end date. What is the process for ending the schools in Labrador? What happens, because again, you mentioned earlier that once Newfoundland and Labrador become part of Canada, there still isn't that much of a relationship between the federal government and the schools. And obviously, if the last school closes, if 1980 is your end date, that's over a decade before the last school in Canada closes. So what, what's the context there for the closures? Well, again, each of the schools was very unique in, in closing, and there were many reasons across the schools. I'll just give you a few examples, though. The school in Makovic opened in the 1910s, and then by the 1940s, most of the children in the Makovic school were, you know, majority of them anyway, were from the, the Hopedale region, which is slightly farther north. There's a big Moravian station in Hopedale, but they had closed their day school when the Makovic boarding school had opened. So all of the children from Hopedale had to go down to Makovic to go to boarding school. And the parents in Hopedale were really not happy with this. They had a lot of conflicts with the, the missionaries. And uh, at one point in 1949, I think it was, they the parents withdrew their children from the school. They said, you know, this is not, uh, we don't like how our children are being treated. We, you know, they're given work other than school work to do. They're, there's racism happening in the school. So they, they withdrew their children actually in protest. And over the next few years, they pressured the Moravian missionaries to open a day school in Hopedale so that they didn't have to send their children away. And so eventually that happened. The, the day school opened in Hopedale. And so the numbers were just so low in, in Makovic that the missionaries closed the boarding school in, in 1955. So that was one one reason why that right. one closed. That was a one that, that closed relatively early. The one in Nain, for instance, went until 19. Uh, 72, but it was it was really towards the end, just a small dormitory for the handful of children whose whose families didn't live in the community. So when the numbers went down, they they closed that as well, and that that's the same as as the St. Anthony Orphanage. They uh, closed it when when the numbers went down. The final boarding school that closed was the Northwest River dormitories in 1980 and that and again that closed really because of community pressure to to improve the educational system so in the through the 1970s on the north coast of labrador there were no high school classes offered the mm. the schools went to grade 8 and that was all they offered and uh, so to continue on, you had to move to Northwest River and, and live in the dorm, as, as the kids called it. And a lot of kids dropped out of school. They, they didn't want to, to do that. But a lot of kids did, did go. And, and many talk about just having an awful experience being there. So in, through the 1970s, they 
again, you know, students led the kind of rebellion against this pro- this system. They uh, refused to go. Their parents fought for better educational opportunities at home. There were a lot of Inuit leaders who were involved in in lobbying the the government and the federal government at this point was involved. The federal government had contributed funding to the Northwest River Regional High School and, and dormitory. And so it was just pressure. They, they, they said, no, we need to have the North Coast communities need to have the resources to offer high school. Like it's just mm-hmm. not right that everybody has to leave to go to high school. So eventually they won that battle and the, the North Coast communities uh, offered high school classes. And so the numbers went down. So the International Grenfell Association closed that dormitory in 1980. And that really speaks to the power of the communities themselves and, and people advocating for themselves, their children and their their communities where they are. And that kind of speaks to the truth and reconciliation side of this whole process that when the federal truth and reconciliation process begins in 2008, Labrador and Newfoundland are not included in that process. So I'm kind of curious to start on on this track. How much of what you do in the book is is almost in response to that? Because so much of truth and reconciliation, so much of that process is giving former students, giving survivors and their families the opportunities to share their stories. And that's a large part of what you're doing in this book. So is any part of the motivation behind the project and what you're doing because of that omission back in 2008? Yes, absolutely. When Prime Minister Harper gave his apology, he actually said, excluding, you know, we're sorry, excluding Newfoundland and Labrador and I think PEI and other places too. But yeah, Labradorians were devastated that they weren't involved, they weren't included in that apology. And a lot of former students really just got so upset with that. And and so they really pushed, uh, there was a class action lawsuit and and, uh, they they really, really pushed to get their stories heard and, and recognized. And with all their efforts, they eventually did succeed in doing that. Prime Minister Trudeau came to Goose Bay in, in 2017 to apologize. At that point, the, the federal government set up the Newfoundland and Labrador Residential Schools Healing and Commemoration Project. I guess you could say it was a mini TRC. It was just for the province, but it was it was designed to hear people's stories and to document the history. Uh, and so that was led by James Igluliorte, who is a former boarding school student himself. Uh, he's from Hopedale and he's a retired provincial judge. So he led it and he asked me, so I'm an anthropologist. I'm, I've been working in Labrador for uh, the last 20 years. And so he, I guess, on the recommendation of the Nunatsiava government and the Nunatuva Community Council, asked me to join this healing and commemoration project to document the history of, of the boarding schools. And so we went to communities throughout Labrador and St. John's and Ottawa and talked with former students. And yeah, they really, really wanted to have their experiences recognized and to, to show that what they went through was really very similar to the Canadian residential schools. 
so I'm curious to to ask before we get into maybe some of the specifics of of what you heard and, and sharing those stories is building trust. And Maurice Sinclair talked about this in, in the federal one, or I've seen interviews where he's talked about that it's all well and good for the federal government to set up a commission. It's a completely other thing for communities and individuals to trust that commission and the people who are behind it. So when you get brought on board with the other members of uh, the committee, the people who are all working there, how do you go about building that trust and ensuring that, or, or whatever verb you want to use, guaranteeing or promising, whatever it is, to survivors, to students, that they can share their stories and that they will be heard? Like, How, how do you go about that really critical work before we can get to the book and, and the, the outcomes of the project? I mean, Jim McGluliarte is well known in in Labrador. He's he was chosen to lead it because of who he is. He's from there. He's you know he has those those connections and that that trust established already. I think he was definitely the one to to lead it. So we spent three or four days in each place and talked to people where they were. It was it was. You know, some people really wanted their story to be heard. They came to us. They they really said, "This is you need to listen to this and document it." And I want this done. I mean, in a lot of cases, people didn't have that that same approach. They, I think, a lot of people felt once the Trudeau's apology had happened that that they they were good. They didn't want to relive things. They didn't want to bring it up anymore. So we, you know, we just talk to people who wanted to talk to us. We didn't pressure anybody or or set up situations that were uncomfortable to people. We let them come to us. And then for my role in in collecting all the the stories that had been shared and a lot of them had been shared over the last 30 years as well. Them Days is a magazine in Labrador. It's an oral history archive. It's really, it's a local organization and they've collected a lot of oral histories and, and stories from, from the boarding schools over the years. So once I, I started to do that too, I was working very closely with an advisory group of, of former students and people who who were really passionate about putting this together, sharing this story widely and and figuring out exactly how to do that. So I relied on them quite a bit. So that element of of trust was developed I think through the through the process as we worked together. And then in terms of putting a book together, I think anybody who has written a history where you use firsthand accounts, you're conscious of the fact that at some point you have to edit those accounts. You have to put them together, put everything into this broader context. And we should say that the book isn't purely oral history. There's textual documents that you used in the course of the book. So once you have those stories and the people have trusted you with those stories, how do you go about that editing process and what to include and where do you stop a story? And, and what is that process like for you and how much consultation did you do with individuals whose stories are included in the book. Yeah, that was the the kind of overwhelming aspect, I guess. All of a sudden you have this hundreds of stories and what do you do with them? How do you make sense of them? Again, I I really did rely on 
the advisor group on the, the, the boarding school students and on family members or the survivors themselves. I would always go back and, and talk to talk to them or their family members. In some cases, too, the families said we don't want our, our grandmothers or whoever's story included. We actually don't don't want that in there or we want it changed. You can add this part, but take out that part. So so that editing process was a, a back and forth for sure, because I was, you know, I'm non-Indigenous. This is not my story to tell, or though that aspect of the residential school story is not my story to tell. And I was really conscious about my role as presenting this and as as editing it and putting it all together. So I consulted with people as, as much as I could. And it was it was interesting too, or for me to see their reaction to to the stories and um, especially stories of sexual um, abuse, of course, were were the most difficult to deal with, and in some cases, families said, "Yeah, we don't want that made public." Yeah, and I think one of the things that comes up a lot when dealing with these sorts of documents, and I spent a year as part of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission project, going through a lot of documentation. Most of the stuff I dealt with was very clinical in terms of like it was building plans and and stuff like that. That's the majority of what I was looking at, but as you go through the material and as you come across some of the more difficult material to read, there's a consciousness, at least it grew in in my case, that the ideas of trauma and intergenerational trauma is very present in these projects. And you don't want to re-traumatize somebody or make their trauma worse in what I think with the TRC and, and the project in Labrador as well is well-intentioned, but within those intentions, well-intentioned projects, if you're not doing it properly, it can actually serve to do more damage. And that's why engaging with people and, and perhaps even more importantly than engaging is listening to community members and, and students and, and families. And at any point during the process, did you, have to remind maybe not only yourself, because there's a, a, I think, a desire amongst historians to just tell the stories and say, this is what happened, tell the stories. And I know you, you said you're not a historian by training, and we forgive that on this show. But Thank you. We, we, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where we sometimes in academic training, you're so ingrained of like, tell the, the truth, right? Tell what happened. But in a lot of cases, you have to say, well, as you said, this isn't my story to tell. So was that something that you had to kind of remind yourself of as you were going through, like sort of just these little reminders of, oh, like, let me double check that this is okay with the family or let me re-engage with, with these folks. It, it was that part of your process? Yeah, well, I was very conscious. I mean, I, I was writing it for people in Labrador. That was my, that was my audience. Absolutely. I had many sleepless nights worried that that they wouldn't like what it was or they wouldn't be happy with it. So that was absolutely my my audience that I had in mind. But at the same time, so when families told me no, we don't want that that like story of sexual abuse for instance included, I did worry and I guess this is kind of the opposite of what you're asking, but I did think about okay, well how do I make 
obvious the impact that this these schools had on families, had on individuals, had on multiple generations of families if those, you know, awful details and I you know, I can understand. I I agree with not including the sordid details of all, you know, the that sort of thing, but how can I make sure that the readers the non-Labradorian readers, the people who haven't been personally impacted by this, how can I ensure that they really fully understand the impact? Right. So that was a a balance, and I'm not sure that I reached it, but I I went with what the the Labrador families wanted for sure. That was my absolute first goal. Yeah, I, I think there's a certain debate in journalism circles as well when there's violent crime of how much do you talk about or show so that people understand the extent of what happened, but without really creating more trauma by actually showing it. And it really is a a tough spot to be in. So you mentioned that you were writing for Labradorians, that you were talking with them. What has the reaction been, not only to the book, but to the wider project where going around meeting with people, you mentioned a lot of folks were moved by the apology in 2017 when Justin Trudeau went out. But where do things stand in Labrador, in Newfoundland, relative to the broader process of reconciliation? So in terms of people's reaction to the book, I think it's been generally positive. I think a lot of people have have appreciated seeing their their relatives, you know, on, on the page and, and in photos and that kind of thing and, and feel happy, you know, again, as you, you said, this is, this is really, a lot of it is leading from the 2008 exclusion of Labrador. So I think with this book that has, that has, you know, finalized that, that kind of um, process, those stories are, are out there. And I think a lot of families have, or a lot of people have um, talked to me about and said, well, yeah, we really appreciate, like, I didn't know this about my grandmother or you've, you know, the, the, this aspect of the story, we didn't, we didn't know. So I think they appreciate having it all together. And I think um, including the Northern Labrador and, and Southern Labrador stories together. So the Moravian story and the international Grenfell story and putting them together, usually in this province, it's either one or the other. You talk about this, mm-hmm. you talk about the North or you talk about the South and they're not really included uh, together. So I think that was um, something that people really appreciated in terms of reconciliation. I mean, that's a, big topic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a broad goal. Yeah. While the federal federal government apologized, of course, um, I think the provincial government is close to apologizing. They've, they've been working on their apology for a while, and I'm hopeful that it'll happen soon. A lot of people, though, are saying that the, the Moravian Mission and the International Grenfell Association, the two organizations who really were the hands-on uh, organizations for the boarding school. They haven't apologized. And I don't think that there's any real push within either organization for for an apology. So that's still left undone. Is there a connection now between Labrador, Newfoundland, and the rest of the country 
because yeah, as we said at the start, the Labrador system was very different. Each school was different. You can't maybe even talk about a Labrador system because each school was individual, but given what's happened in the past few years, is there now a connection between the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation out in Winnipeg and the work that you did in Labrador? Is there something now that that this story, the, the Labrador story, is included in the broader Canadian story of residential schools and now reconciliation? So yeah, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation has really reached out, I think, in the last three or four years to uh, to include this story. I think they recognize it. I think, I mean, there were all kinds of, early on anyway, I guess there were boundaries set up with, with okay, well, what was Canadian? What was under the Indian Act? That was the jurisdiction. That was the TRC jurisdiction. So that's why those boundaries were connected. But I think people are realizing that that you know those those sorts of jurisdictional boundaries are not they don't really have a, a place here. So um, I know people in the Nunatsiavut government, and I think in Nunatsiavut Community Council too, have been attending events that that like national events for residential school survivors. And so yeah, I think there's been quite a bit more of that um, back and forth recently, uh, which is great to see and uh, and. Just as a, a final question, for you as a scholar, could you just describe what being part of this process was like uh, on an individual level? You mentioned that the potential challenge of not being an Indigenous scholar, and so this aren't necessarily your stories to tell, but you have the opportunity to share them. And so what has the process been on that individual level for you, both as a scholar and perhaps even just as a person? Well, it's been it's been really powerful, I guess, for me. It 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 was intimi- absolutely intimidating in the beginning to do it. And I, I've learned a lot about relationship as as I've gone through. But I think really for me, and I'm really working through this now still, is I think it's really important. I mean, we often I think see the residential school story as being one about indigenous pain, Indigenous trauma, but I think it's it's just as much about non-Indigenous people causing harm. And so it's, I found it really interesting to go and really look closely at, at the motivations, at the assumptions, the behaviors of the non-Indigenous people who were running the schools, and to look really closely at how they were absolutely certain they were doing the right thing, but they were causing harm at the same time. And and they either ignored that harm altogether, or they somehow justified it. And I think those same behaviors are continuing today. And I think that's, that's one of the main lessons that, that those of us who are non-Indigenous need to take from this history is, is to see how colonial violence works. And it's, it's not the case of there being a few bad apples, you know, abusing children. It's it's not individuals. It was a societal system and, and society supported it. And, you know, the people running the schools thought they were in the right. And, and that continues today. So, you know, how am I as an individual causing harm today in my relationships with Indigenous communities, Indigenous people, and not recognizing it or, or not 
you know? So I think those, that, that kind of lesson uh, is really key. And it's something that I'm still working through. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks across the country who are in similar situations or are working, or even just, just people who want to be part of reconciliation in a meaningful way. These, these are questions that uh, those of us who are settlers, non-Indigenous uh, Canadians are wrestling with. So it's, it's important that we reflect on that and think about those more deeply. And uh, certainly the book is a wonderful way to start that process. So again, it is a long journey, residential schools in Labrador and Newfoundland. Andrew, if people want to get a copy of the book or you've written other books about uh, Labrador as well. So if people want to keep up with all your work, what's the best way for them to do that? So it's published by Memorial University Press and uh, they're online. You can you can look at their catalog there. And I should say, too, that all all royalties from a long journey go to them days. I I, I am not personally benefiting from <laughs> from the book. So all, all royalties are, are going to the Them Days archive in Goose Bay in Labrador. Terrific. And we will link to uh, the archive. We will link to the book down in the show notes below. So, uh, so certainly check that out. So again, A Long Journey Residential Schools in Labrador and Newfoundland. Andrew Proctor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. My discussion with Andrea Proctor. I thank her for her time. Again, the book is A Long Journey Residential Schools in Labrador and Newfoundland. And with that, let's get to today's historical headline of the week, which this week is going to be the Newfoundland and Labrador Residential Schools Healing and Commemoration Project. As I mentioned at the start of our discussion, a lot of people outside of Newfoundland and Labrador don't really get a lot of Newfoundland and Labrador history in schools or in post-secondary environments. So this week, I'm going to post the link to the project so that everybody has the opportunity to explore the work they did and the recommendations that come out of that project. I will also link below the Truth and Reconciliation Commission final report. If you have not yet, it is always a good time to go and read that report as well as the calls to action, several of which you can do individually in your life. They aren't necessarily broad government actions. There are things that individual Canadians can do. So I will link to both of those down below. And I'll also link to the Them Days archives, which is where all of the proceeds for Andrew's book are going. So today's historical headline of the week, the Newfoundland and Labrador Residential Schools Healing and Commemoration Project. And with that, I will say thank you so much for listening, everybody. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show. Wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, the ratings, the comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show, keeps us growing. As always, you can let me know what you want to hear on the show, what's oldest news at gmail.com and head on over to activehistory.ca. Some wonderful series going on over there this fall, including the Chat GPT series, where the editorial collective are asking Chat GPT about their own areas of expertise and seeing what comes out, how accurate is it, whether it's good or not. Really enjoying that series over there on Active History. And we also have some great stuff coming up for you here on the show. Be sure to subscribe. We'll be back next week with more What's Old is News.